Okay. Dave, where's, where's Dave? He's over here. We welcome Dave to speak to us this morning. It's great to have you, Dave, and let, let's pray for you as, as you come to us. Lord, thank you for the word that you've given Dave this morning, and we pray that we will hear you speak through him, and that he too will be richly blessed by the Spirit as he speaks to us. Thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful and brings results. And we pray, Lord God, that you will do that for us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rod. A very good morning to you all. And a special uh, good morning and welcome to any visitors here today. Uh, It's great to be with you. My name is Dave, and I'm just going to be sharing a bit with you uh, from one of the earliest writings that we have of uh, Jesus' life and teachings. Uh, I'm not sure I can add much to the sermon you've already heard on the video, and I haven't got the same American accent, so I'm sorry for that, but we'll do what we can. Um, If you haven't got a Bible to hand, if you give me a wave, and you you could use one of these. Has anyone not got a Bible? You can use one of these. This is just a copy of John's Gospel. John was one of Jesus' friends, an eyewitness, and he, um, he wrote these things down so we could know the real deal, who Jesus really was. And, um, and we're going to just read a very short section of that this morning. So, anyone else need one? A couple? Okay, great. Do you mind if you pass those down to people who need them? Thank you. Great. Thank you. Brilliant. So, we're in John's Gospel today, if you've got a Bible. Uh, if you've got one of these, uh, we're in chapter 8. And we're starting at verse uh, 31. It's on page 30, if you've got one of these little green books. And we're just going to read until the end of verse 37. Jesus said to the people who had believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will set us free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because... There's no room in your hearts for my message. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word that you've given us uh, so that we can know you. Lord, I pray for your help now that by your Holy Spirit, these words that I share are not really mine, but are are yours. Anything that's not of you, Lord, I just pray it would be left to one side uh, and forgotten. But Lord, anything that's from you, uh, anything that's faithful, anything that's helpful, Lord, would you open our hearts um, and soften them to receive that word from you. And I pray, Lord, for your glory's sake, that that word will make a difference, that it will take root in hearts that are willing to hear it and bring about transformation. Lord, make us more into your likeness. And Lord, for those here this morning, perhaps visitors who have not heard much of this before, I just pray it be clear. 
You'd help them to understand who you are and what it means to come to know you personally. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. What is faith? What does it mean to believe? The song says, doesn't it, I've got to have faith, faith, faith. But what is faith? Faith in what? And what does it do for us? I think it'd be fair to say that our faith in politicians has been tested somewhat in recent months and and years. They say religion and politics are two things you're not meant to talk about in polite company. I thought I'd just broach both of them in the first 30 seconds, if that's okay. But our faith in politicians has been tested. Now, I'm quite sure all of us believe that they exist, right? We have that level of faith. We believe, we know they're there. That's the problem, okay? (laughs) But do we trust them to deliver certain things? Do we believe what they say to us? Would we follow their lead uh, unquestioningly? Do we have that level of faith? Here's a good measure of faith. I came across this in the paper the other day. Would we buy a used car from them? Uh, A YouGov survey for the Sunday Times found that only 13% of voters would buy a second-hand vehicle from Boris Johnson. (laughs) It's interesting. Faith gets real, and not just an abstract idea, when we're willing to uh, entrust something precious into someone's hands. Uh, When you're prepared to take them at their word, that's where faith gets real. Ultimate faith, real faith, is where you put your life in someone's hands and do exactly what they say, even if you don't understand it. Uh, When I'm going down the stairs with our four-year-old, Isla, uh, oftentimes she'll let me go down the first two or three steps, um, and then she'll hurl herself through the air into my arms, often without prior warning. That's faith. She's flying through the air, and if I'm not on the ball, she'll land at the bottom. What's Christian faith, then? What is faith in Christ, true faith in Christ? Now, a lot of people say they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, by which often they mean they believe he exists. But what does it mean to have real Christian faith, the kind of faith that Jesus accepts as authentic, the kind of faith that does something, that's made up of total trust? What does it look like? Well, that's the question at the heart of this passage that we just read. It's the question that Jesus seeks to clarify for those who, in verse 31, if you see there at the beginning of our passage, they're described as believers, those who have believed in him. If you look at the verse just before, verse 30, it says, many believed in him. So they're described as believers, but Jesus wants to help these people to see the the real nature of that belief. What's it made of? Is it the real deal? Is it genuine Christian faith, or is it something else? And as we follow this interchange, I think we'd do well to to use this passage as a mirror for ourselves and consider our own uh, faith. Is it the real deal? We might believe in God, might call ourselves a Christian, but is this faith genuine? Is this the kind of faith that Jesus accepts as authentic? Or am I mistaken? Am I deluding myself? Calling myself something that I'm not? So we're going to consider something of Jesus' definition of true faith. That's the first kind of section, the first bit of the passage we're going to look at. The definition of faith. And then we're going to look at, uh, look at an objection that's, that's kind of 
put forward in response, an objection from his listeners, and then we're going to hear Jesus' clarification or further explanation. So we've got definition, objection, and clarification of, of what true faith is and why it's necessary. So first of all, we've got this definition, verse 31, and I appreciate some people might have a, a slightly different wording, a different translation of the original text, um, but verse 31 in this version says this, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Um, and another translation, a very literal translation says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, if you abide in my word. This is the definition of a true disciple. Someone who really believes, who has genuine faith, the kind of faith that Jesus accepts as authentic. It's someone who abides in his word. Did you see that? Someone who abides in his word or is faithful uh, to his teachings. It's all about how we respond to Jesus' word. That's the definition. Uh, This word abide in the original, um, it, it means to stay or to remain, to live. It's where you are constantly. It's like that's your house. You get into it and you stay in it. Jesus' word. You don't just believe it intellectually. You're in it. You're living it. You're living in it. Um, There are reports of a famous tightrope walker called Blondine who would walk from one side of the Niagara Falls to the other on a tightrope. And the stories go he did amazing things. He would would walk halfway across and and cook some eggs and eat them on the tightrope. Amazing tricks. And people used to come from all around uh, to see him. And there's there's an account of him going up to someone in the crowd once and saying, do you believe I can take a man across in my wheelbarrow? And the man said, yes. So he said, hop in. And he said, no. But someone did. One, only one person would. An old lady, the story goes, an old lady came forward and said, I'll hop in. And he took her across and back again. Safely. Only one person had the kind of faith in Blondine that actually got her to the other side. The one who was willing to put her money where her mouth was. The one who got into the wheelbarrow, and, and, that, uh, and the one who actually took him at his word and followed his instructions. I'm told you're meant to be a dead weight in those situations. You're not meant to help out by balancing. That would be off-putting. Blondin did all the work, but she had to hop in and do what he said. A true disciple, Jesus says, is someone who gets in the wheelbarrow, as it were. Leaves the rest behind and follows his instructions, lives it out, abides in his word. Elsewhere, Jesus said, if you really love me, you'll do the things I say. That's how we love God. That's how we know him, by accepting his word and and living it out, obeying him. We can't have Jesus without accepting his words. They're inseparable. It's all part of a package. You know, it'd be a bit like, imagine if I proposed to someone I said, I love you, I want to marry you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. You're just not allowed to talk. (laughs) I'm not sure how well that would go down. I haven't tried it, I hasten to add. (laughs) But we can't separate Jesus from his word. 
And you might have noticed here, it, it, it says, well, it, in the original, it says word rather than words. And here it's translated as teachings. But really, what Jesus seems to have in mind here is his whole message, the whole thing, the sum of his teaching, the, the sort of overarching theme through everything that he's saying. So what is his message? What is his teaching? Well, if you've not read it before, I invite you, please, just take this home and, and give it a read. It won't take you long to get through. This is one of the original accounts of Jesus' life. Just keep this. And, and if you've already got one, give it to a, a friend, especially if they've not read it before. But I think what you'll find as you read through it is this. What Jesus keeps doing again and again in his teaching is he keeps redirecting the attention to himself. He is the message. He is the sum of his teaching. The, the truth in verse 32 that we're going to know if we abide in his word, the truth that we'll come to know, he is the truth. It's very interesting. Most religious leaders don't point to themselves. They point to God or whatever it is they're saying is, is the aim. You know, Moses, Buddha, um, Muhammad, any religious leader you like, they don't point to themselves. They, they point the way, they're signposts. But Jesus is ever so different. He keeps pointing to himself. It's what gets him in trouble. He keeps pointing to himself. He is the sum of his teaching. In fact, later on in John's Gospel, you'll read it if you have a look through. Later on he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an incredible thing. Jesus is saying that he himself is the way to God. He's not a signpost to the way. He is the way. He's saying he is the truth. He doesn't just tell you the truth. He is the truth. And he is himself the life. He doesn't just tell you the way to eternal life, but eternal life is, is, is him. It's to know him and be with him. It's what we were made for. He came to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to God, to show us the truth which is himself and, and to give us eternal life. And when it comes to who exactly Jesus is, again, he keeps pointing back to the fact that he himself is to be identified with God. He is the unique, divine Son of the Father. And, and in fact, later on in this chapter, if you were to read to the end of this chapter, you'd see, he makes that claim so unmistakably that they try to kill him there and then for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. They didn't manage to in this instance, but of course, eventually they, they do. He ends up on a cross. Because they can't bear this claim that a man is claiming to be God. So this is the sum of his teaching. He is the sum of his teaching. Jesus, God with us, to reconcile us to God. And you see the reward of faith, the gift that comes to those who abide in his word in verse 32. Can you see it there if you look down with me? Verse 32. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom. True freedom. And in verse 51, just beyond where we stopped reading, you'll see that that's equated with eternal life. There he says, the one who keeps his word will never die. So freedom and eternal life. This is the gift, the free gift that comes to those who abide in his word, the ones who hop in. What a wonderful promise. You know, some people fear it's the exact opposite, don't they? They think if they come to Jesus, it's going to spoil their fun. They'll become less free. There'll be those kind of limitations around them. Well, I hope we'll see as this dialogue unfolds that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus came to bring full freedom. 
And in the very beginning, God created us for freedom. He gave us free reign in the world that he had created. The only thing he prohibited was the one thing that would do us harm. The one thing that would bring sickness, sorrow, and death. It wasn't to limit us, it was to keep us safe. Much as a parent might warn a child away from a road or something dangerous, it's not to spoil their fun. It's to keep them safe. It's to keep them free so they can walk about in safety. God told human beings not to go near the one thing that would do them harm. And this was for our freedom, for which God lovingly made us. And Jesus came to restore that freedom. Freedom to walk with our loving creator once again. Freedom to be in harmony with one another. Wouldn't that be freedom? And freedom to be um, at peace and and in, in step with nature rather than pitted against it. This is true freedom. And even today, God is in the business of freeing people into this new, wonderful kingdom. Are you one of them? He's growing this kingdom and it's developing. And one day it will be complete, packed full of people from every nation and every language on earth. This is the wonderful gift, the free gift that Jesus promises to all who abide in his word, who are faithful to his teachings, those who are truly his disciples. He's the one who does it, but we have to get in the wheelbarrow. Lovingly, Jesus wishes to clarify for for those who who think of themselves here as believers what true faith really is, so they don't settle for less. He doesn't want them to miss out. He wants them to be free. Are you free this morning? Do you know that freedom? The claim that Jesus is making here is that if you abide in his word, you're a true disciple, and the truth will set you free. Of course, there's an implication here that's not perhaps very easy to, to hear. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Jesus' listeners in this passage take offense. Did you see that? And this is where we come with the objection, our kind of second section, the objection. Do you see it there in verse 33? Who are you calling a slave? They take offense. We've never been slaves to anyone, they say. We're Jewish. Who are you calling a slave? I don't know whether you've ever been offered something and um, wrapped up in it, there's a kind of implied criticism. Have you ever had that? I've come to understand that when my wife offers me chewing gum, she's not just offering me chewing gum. She's saying I need chewing gum. And I think perhaps it goes back to my choice of a Greg's prawn baguette an hour before our wedding. Uh, I don't think that was forgotten quickly. So when she offers chewing gum, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to to learn what it really means. And sometimes, you know, my knee-jerk response is, I don't need chewing gum. That's what knee-jerk defensiveness we can have to criticism, great or small. Our instinct is to say, no, that's, I don't need that. And that's what's going on here. No one likes to be called a slave. We've never been slaves to anyone, they say. We're Abraham's children. Their sense of national pride is pricked. And in their defensiveness, it's quite amazing, they actually they exhibit an astonishingly selective historical perspective. The Israelites spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. And later on, they were in Babylonian captivity. And even here and now, they were under Roman occupation, perhaps not slaves as such, but not quite free. 
But such is the human heart. We will often defend ourselves even in the face of evidence. We often tell ourselves what our ego needs to hear. Pride trumps reason. The bottom line of what they're saying is, we're we're doing fine, thank you very much. We might like watching you or listening to you. We like being around you, but we don't actually need you. And we don't want you to change us. We're doing fine. Thank you very much. But are they? It's incidental that their pride is is, um, predominantly a, a national pride. We all take pride in something. For some of us, it will be our national heritage. That's what we take pride in. That's who we are. But for others, it will be perhaps our family. We might come from a good, upstanding Christian family, and that's what we put our our trust in. We think we're doing fine on that basis. For others, it might be our deeds, our charitable works. That's what makes us okay or acceptable. For others, it might be our physical fitness or appearance or our brains or our career, um, our money. For some, it might just be our lifestyle. We like our lives. We like the way we live. Or some of us, we're very good at going green. We're carbon neutral. We feel really good about that. That's what makes us morally above average. I wonder, what's your pride in? What's your identity in? What is it that makes you think, I'm okay, I'm fine. I don't need you. We're fine, we tell ourselves. But are we really? Is it possible that like these Jews, we're blinkered? We're deluding ourselves. What if we do need something? What if Jesus is right? There's no question that it's difficult to hear we need something that we might need to change dramatically. Something inside us needs to die to accept that. But the question is, is it true? That's what really matters. You know, if a doctor calls you in and says, you need to take this pill once a day to keep you alive, it won't be easy to hear. But the question is, is it true? And if it's true, are you going to do it? Jesus isn't saying this stuff to upset his fellow Jews. He's saying it so they can be free, so they can have life. He loves them. He wants them to be free. He wants them to do well. But will they accept it? Will we accept it? To help, Jesus goes on to clarify what he means, what kind of freedom he's actually talking about. And this is going on to our third section this morning, clarification. Look at verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. These Jews had the wrong end of the stick. Not only did they overreach in their claim to to be free already and, and to never have been slaves ever, they actually totally misunderstand the very kind of freedom Jesus was talking about in the first place. He wasn't talking about political freedom. You know, if we think our biggest problem is politics, Jesus doesn't necessarily offer an answer for that. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. Jesus' claim is that our real problem is bigger and deeper and much closer to home. As one person has put it, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That's where the real slavery is. That's where the real oppression is. There's a dark power from within that enslaves us and oppresses us. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Evil things come from within our hearts and are expressed in outer words and actions. It's not the other way around. They don't come from the outside. 
and work their way in, apart from insofar as we're influenced by other people and the evil in their hearts. Now, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. There's this natural bent, this inclination in our hearts towards things that harm us and others. These things might seem attractive, but they bring misery. And we're often powerless to stop it. We're powerless to help ourselves. We have a sort of God complex. We, we, it causes us to elevate ourselves way beyond the level we're meant to occupy as created beings. And it does us and others no good. It's more obvious perhaps in some people or in some situations than in others, but we've all, each one of us, stepped out of line. That's the Bible's account. We've all done this. And, and that's what this word sin refers to in this passage that, that Jesus uses here. Sin, it's this condition we have in our hearts and the actions that it causes. And Jesus says it ever so clearly, we're slaves to sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says elsewhere in the Bible. This is the great problem we have. This is what we need freedom from. We might delude ourselves into thinking we're free, we've never been slaves to anyone or anything, we, we, we do what we like, we're totally independent, we're free agents. But it's not true. We do wrong things, and we can't help ourselves. We're slaves to sin. We couldn't be right before God even if we tried. Desires, addictions, hurts, pride, they control us. They get the better of us. We're powerless to stop it. And the real problem of sin is that it wrecks our relationship with God. We were made to be in step with him. But in sinning, we turned our backs... And now we live at odds with him in his world. We live as enemies of God, apart from Christ. And we fall under his righteous anger at our unrighteous behavior. We fall under his judgment. We forfeit the eternal life he made us for. As it says elsewhere, the wages of sin, what you get for sin is death. And as Jesus makes it clear in in verse 35 here, slaves don't have rights. They can't free themselves. They need to be freed by someone else. We're not okay. We're not free apart from Christ. We're in trouble. You know, in those days, someone had to pay a ransom to free a slave. It costs money to free a slave, to redeem a slave. Well, there is someone who has the funds to ransom us. Slaves as we are to sin. Did you see it there in verses 35 and 36? The son of a household has a permanent place in the family. You know, he's an heir. He acts on the authority of his father. He's part of the family. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the glorious good news. The son can do it. I can't do it. You can't do it but the Son can do it. Jesus has the power to free us from the power of sin and from its penalty, and he is willing. What does it cost to free us from sin? What's the ransom? What's the price we're talking here? Later on, Jesus says in this gospel, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the cost we're talking here. 
Greater love has no man than this, said Jesus, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's how much this cost. It cost us nothing. We had nothing to give. It cost him everything. Jesus gave his very life. That was the ransom. The only way we could be redeemed. No other price would have been enough. There was no other good enough. Only Jesus could do it. And this is what he means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, because he himself is sent by the Father to lay down his life and to be, as it were, the human bridge, the divine bridge between us and God that we can cross over. His body, his blood is the price so that we can be reconciled to God. He suffered the penalty for sin on the cross in our place to free us from the penalty of sin. And as we come to him, put our trust in him, abide in his word, he begins to free us from the power of sin as well. We're freed from the penalty already. And he's in the business of freeing us from the power of sin. So it no longer has that mastery over us. This is true freedom. Imagine that. Freedom from the love of money. Freedom from addictive behaviors. Freedom from hatred and and, and vengeful thoughts towards those who've hurt us. Freedom from desiring wrong things that will do us harm and hurt others. That's real freedom. Jesus didn't come to spoil our fun. He came to free us. Do you want that freedom if you haven't got it already? It's an open invitation. It's, it's for you. Jesus said, look, if anyone abides in my word, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciple. And the tr- you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a promise. And it's for anyone who'll take it. All you have to do is come as you are to Jesus and abide in his word. Allow him to take the helm. Allow him to be the Lord of your life. He'll forgive your past and direct your future. He'll take you as you are. He's good like that. But he won't leave you as you are. Day by day, he'll transform you into his likeness by his grace. Will you hop in the wheelbarrow? So I think you can see, hopefully, the the clarification that Jesus provides here. The freedom he's offering is freedom from sin. The freedom that we really need. And the truth, verse 32, that sets us free, well, it's the Son. Do you see that in verse 36? It's the Son who sets you free. The truth and the Son are kind of used interchangeably here. It's the Son who sets you free. Verse 36. It's Jesus himself. Shall we close by just looking at verse 37 and considering our response? to this. The shocking thing here is that those we were introduced to as believers in verse 31, well, it turns out they're not genuine believers at all. Notwithstanding their national heritage, I know you're the offspring of Abraham, I know you're Abraham's children, says Jesus, together with all the religious and and moral uh, connotations that would have carried in those days, Jesus brings it back to the only thing that matters. The only thing that defines whether or not a person is a true disciple. Did you see it there? My word finds no place in you, he says. Or in this one, he says, says, there's no room in your hearts for my message. The teachings are rejected. There's no space 
for what Jesus says. They're not the real deal after all. In fact, more than that, these particular people, they they so hate his message, and therefore him, that they actually are trying to kill him. And just a few verses later, they actually try it on there and then. They pick up stones. He manages to escape, but of course, eventually, they do kill him. They put him on a cross. Not that he stayed dead, as we've sung already. The truth is, if we reject Jesus' words, we reject him. When we make him in our own image, we reject his words, and we reject him. When we subscribe him to our cause, rather than allowing him to subscribe us to his cause, we reject his words, and we reject him. When we uh, use his name as a swear word, or when we ignore him altogether, we reject his words, and we reject him. At the final reckoning, there are in fact only two kinds of people. Moths and cockroaches. Moths are drawn to the light, and cockroaches flee from the light. And that's a theme on repeat in John's Gospel. You'll see it if you read it. Jesus described himself as the light of the world. He did it just before this passage. If you just look above the the passage we read. He describes himself as the light of the world. And some are drawn to the light. They're drawn to Jesus and his words. They love it. They come into the light and they accept it. There are others who go the other way. They're driven away, but they can't bear it. They're driven away from the light. They reject Jesus and his word. There are only two kinds of people. And I wonder, which kind of person are you? A moth or a cockroach? Can you hear the message? Can you accept it? Can you abide in it? Getting in the wheelbarrow does entail a cost. You have to leave certain things behind. You have to let go of control. You have to let someone else take charge of your life, you have to leave some things behind. But as one of my heroes once wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I trust that as the Holy Spirit works, even this morning, even today, God will grant you the grace to come and accept that truth, to come and accept Jesus, to be a moth, to come to the light, to trust in Jesus. Amen.